This is part three of our series, If God is Good, and the title of this morning is The Crucified God. If you've been following along with us, uh, you know that this is uh, a series that all the talks are kind of building off one another, and uh, so if you haven't heard the first two, I'd encourage you to go uh, check them out. Uh, I've been waiting for this Sunday. This is, uh, it's, it's hard to, you know, talk about all these questions without actually going straight to an easy answer, um, but there are no easy answers, and so I didn't want to hurry that process either. The first talk, I mentioned a couple of books that I was drawing on uh, quite heavily, uh, Making Sense Out of Suffering by Peter Kreeft and Evil and the Justice of God by N.T. Wright. And some of you looked to buy those books and we ran out the first week. They just came in. So if you were waiting on those books, uh, they're available in the foyer after service. So just to recap, the first week we looked at the philosophical problem of evil. Uh, Christianity embraces four truths that God uh, exists, that God is all-powerful, that God is good, and that evil exists. And the challenge becomes how do you embrace one of, all four of these things without getting rid of one of those four? And there's lots of easy answers out there, but all those easy answers tend to deny one of those four truths. There's also a biblical problem in that the Bible talks about this idea of retributive suffering, which I've referred to as parenting 101. If you do this, you're going to get rewarded. If you don't do this, you're going to get punished. And it's very simple for kids to get, and I go to it as a parent all the time, and it's what we see in Scripture when we look uh, through, the, uh, through the Old Testament in particular. God is training his people and giving them this retributive theology, uh, do good things to get blessed. And if you don't obey my commands, then there will be punishment. Yet as the Israelites and the people of God journeyed through that reality, uh, they found that it wasn't always true, or at least it wasn't true in the time span and the immediacy that they were looking for, that they were trying to honor God, they're trying to live for God, but yet they found themselves suffering or being oppressed. And we see lots of questions through Scripture about, God, you said this, but why am I experiencing this? Why are the wicked thriving? Why are the good suffering? And last week, we considered that evil and pain and suffering are not necessarily the same thing. And that good and pleasure and comfort are not necessarily the same thing either. That it, it is possible that suffering and pain can serve a good purpose. And so we have to get out of our easy categories of evil and suffering if we're going to embrace this, uh, this question with some integrity. So that brings us to this morning, The Crucified God. The song that you heard in the intro was a song called Farther Along by Josh Gerrels. And I'm going to use... The first phrase of, it's, it's a great song, the whole thing is awesome, uh, but the first phrase, I remember hearing it for the first time and just being struck um, by the honesty and beauty of the first few lines in the verse, and it says, I wonder why the good man dies, the bad man thrives, and Jesus cries because he loves them both. We're all castaways in need of rope. And I'm going to use that as a basic outline for this morning. I wonder why the good man dies, the bad man thrives, and Jesus cries because he loves them both. We're all castaways in need of rope. I wonder why the good man dies, the bad man thrives. That's a, that's a repeat of this idea, this retributive suffering idea that doesn't seem to fit our experience all the time. But the last line of that phrase, we're all castaways in need of rope 
which is in tension with the first line that there's good people and there's bad people, but then the last line it says we're all castaways in need of rope. And if you read through the story of Scripture, God chose Israel to be a light to the world, but the biblical story tells us that the corruption within Israel itself as the people who bear the solution to this problem have actually become a central part of the problem. See, Abraham was chosen, but he was not without fault. If you know the story, he lied a couple of times, said that his wife was his sister. God gave him, told him that he was going to bless him with a child, but he didn't really trust God's promise, and so he took that promise into his old, own hands and slept with somebody else so that he could have a kid. And then we have the high priest Aaron, who led the people of God to actually worship an idol when Moses was up on the mountain. And then Moses himself, we know, was a murderer. And then in this moment of pride, he actually forfeited his opportunity to go into the promised land that God uh, was calling him to lead the people into, and he didn't even get to go himself because of his own pride. We have David, a murderer and adulterer. Samuel, who had a little bit of a woman problem, I think we could say. And then you go through king after king in the Old Testament, and you find that most of Israel's kings just had this blatant unfaithfulness to God, even though they were chosen by God to represent him to a broken world. And it goes on and on. And you have the voice of the prophets in the middle of this saying things like this. I'm going to read from Jeremiah uh, chapter 6, verse 13 to 14. It says, From the least to the greatest, all are greedy for pain, for, all are greedy for gain. Not greedy for pain. Going opposite. Um, who are greedy for gain? All. Prophets and priests alike. All practice deceit. They dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. Jeremiah is looking at the world around them, looking at the Israelite people, and he's recognizing that it's not as easy as good people and bad people, but all people are greedy for gain. Even the people who are called to be prophets and priests. Peace, peace, they say, but there is no peace. Isaiah 64, verse 6, Isaiah, another prophet, says this, all of us, who? All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all, of, all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. You see, the development of the story goes like this. Israel wants God to come and clear the world of the bad guys so that they can rule as the good guys. But as time goes on and the prophets speak out, it is realized that there is no such thing as good guys and bad guys. See, the law was the standard, this parenting 101 idea. But over time, they realized that they couldn't actually achieve the law through just trying harder. They realized over time that they couldn't do it. And the Apostle Paul would later say that the whole point of the law was actually to reveal that we are imperfect, we can't even accomplish the law on our own. And so you're left with concluding that there is no good guys, bad guys, there is no us and them. Only the strange, silent figure of Isaiah 53, which we won't read now, you can read it on your own, but Isaiah 53 describes this figure that stands before us as the only one who is innocent and righteous, 
a prophetic figure that would later be identified as Jesus. Then Jesus comes, and in Matthew chapter 9, verse 12, he says, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. See, Jesus is not stating here that some people are healthy and don't need a doctor, but rather he's saying that everybody is unhealthy and needs a doctor, but you can actually only experience the cure if you accept the diagnosis. He came for those who are sick and need a doctor. And the question is, do the people that are sick accept the diagnosis that we're actually sick and need healing? And to be sure, it's humiliating to accept both the diagnosis and the cure. And as our world demonstrates more and more obviously, when you pretend that evil isn't there, you merely give it more space to operate. So this line of good and evil even went down the middle of Jesus' followers himself. Peter was called to be a rock and is immediately denounced and called Satan. It goes from like the greatest moment of his life, Peter, you're a rock, I'm going to build my church on you. Uh, get behind me, Satan. Talk about going from a high to a low. Thomas grumbles and doubts. James and John want the best seats in the kingdom. And all of them argue who are going to get that top spot. And then you got Judas, who is Judas, <laughs> the deepest enigma of all. There isn't really an us and them, good guys, bad guys. And if we look in the mirror, I think we'll recognize that that's true even of us if you look in your heart. I can remember being in grade three. Um, you know, I realized my wickedness at an early age. I, I had this friend, and this friend of mine... We'd do these mischievous things all of the time. Uh, and I had a grade three teacher, this nice old lady in her 50s named Miss Friesen. Um, and uh, my friend and I, we had like this thing where we'd make up some kind of word like, and when we'd say that to the other guy, we would know that, that was code for do the move. And the move was I would go kneel behind somebody as he was distracting them, and he would push them over me, kneeling behind them. We had this great idea that we'd do the move to Miss Friesen one time. The sweet old lady, in her dress, I said something to him, he's like, oh, that's code, do the move. I go behind Mrs. Friesen, he gave Miss Friesen a shove. She went heels over head, onto her back, in her dress, and uh, we didn't have recess, actually, for a few weeks after that. <laughs> See, no one actually taught me to be mischievous, to be hurtful. I learned that on my own. I watched my kids, and I didn't teach them to disobey or punch their brothers, but they just do it on their own. And there's this truth that when humanity, when you and I get honest, we look in the mirror, we say... There is no good guy and bad guy. The good and bad actually exist within each one of us. And it's not only Christians that have prophets. Ironically, there was a Muslim prophet who tells a Jeremiah-like fable, and he says, uh, and it reads something like this, a man said to Allah, grant me all the desires of my, ha my heart. Allah replied, you know not what you ask, therefore to show you your heart I grant your request. And immediately the man's neighbor's house collapsed. 
for his neighbor was very rich and the man had always looked on his neighbor's house with envy and resentment. Rushing out to see what had happened, the man collided with a small child who was in the way. He looked angrily down at the child and the child disappeared off the face of the earth. The man understood and begged Allah, no more, please no more. See, isn't it true that we do have evil desires? We have good ones too, but we're a mix. And so we've asked the question, why do bad things happen to good people? But it's actually a little bit of a false question. This is my good friend Aaron. I'm going to pick on him for a second. Aaron, I got a question for you. The question is, have you stopped beating your wife? Yes or no? <laughs> Absolutely yes. See, it's a false question. I know Aaron well, and I'm pretty sure he doesn't beat his wife. Um, but I put Aaron in that situation. I ask him, have you stopped beating your wife? And he has to respond. He's responding yes or no. It's a yes or no question. But the logic is faulty because if he says yes, it's like he's admitting that he has beaten his wife. But if he says no, then he's in even deeper trouble. There's faulty logic within the question. Why do bad things happen to good people is a similar type of question. The problem of evil is not simply or purely a cosmic thing. It's also the problem about me. The line between good and evil runs through the middle of all of us. If this truth cannot be embraced, then the answer that God gives us to the problem of evil can't be embraced either. This is surely be held in tension with the truth that we were created in God's image, that we are, uh, there is something innately beautiful and precious about every human being. This is not in contradistinction to that truth. We are beautiful, we are made in God's image, but yes, we are also sinful and broken. Those things coexist within each of us. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And as we talk about these things, this is not just an intellectual exercise, is it? I mean, this past week, um, there's a good friend of many people that have gone to Mexico. We've had a guy joining Mexico with us for a while. Um, helping, being one of our build leaders. And this past week, one of his, uh, his sons died while he was hunting. You know, in his mid-20s, I believe. And he had the funeral yesterday. And we had someone in our church whose mom died recently. We have people who are struggling with cancer, people that are losing jobs, broken families. As a pastor, I come face to face with people struggling with all sorts of addictions all the time. And so, although we talk about these things in the intellectual sphere, it's not intellectual at all, it's, it's the experience of our everyday life. And so we, we, stru we struggle with trying to think through this and find a logical response to these tensions that we feel, that we believe in a good, all-powerful God, but yet we live in this messy world. And thankfully, God doesn't leave us to our own logic. God actually reveals his logic to us. If you have your Bibles with you, I want you to turn to John chapter 1.
This is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. It says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The word, the word for word there in the Greek is logos. Logos, which means word, but also logic, explanation understanding. In the beginning was the logic of God. And the logic of God was with God, and the logic was God. This logic was with God in the beginning, and through this all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. If we want to understand the logic of God, when our logic runs short and we come up to the face of mystery, we look at the living logic, the living word of God, the logos, which is Jesus Christ. In verse 14 here in John 1, it says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The logic of God actually came down to earth, put on flesh. God doesn't answer our questions with mere ideas and philosophies, but he answers it in the form of a person. In the form of himself, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then in verse 18, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. See, G.K. Chesterton said, To come back to week one, the poet only asks to get his head into the heavens. It is the logician who seeks to get his heavens into his head, and it's his head that ends up splitting. And here we come humbly before God in the person of Jesus and recognize that this is the answer that God gives to the problem of evil and suffering. That this is the logic and wisdom and response of God to a broken and suffering world. Colossians 1.15 says, The Son is the image of the invisible God. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Verse 19, For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him, in Jesus, the Word. See, the answer from God must be someone, not just something, because the problem of evil is about someone. God, why doesn't He do this or this? Why is this happening? The answer is not just a word, but the word, the living word, not an idea, but a person. Clues are abstract, but persons are concrete. If I were to ask you to describe your wife or your best friend or your sibling, you could talk to me about them for hours because there's something concrete and solid, but also something mysterious that is beyond words. God responds with the person because simple intellect and philosophy has no answer. We want to know what God has to say about the problem of evil. Jesus is what God has to say. Everybody say that. Jesus is what God has to say. We have this nice, tidy way of talking about God the Father 
And then we talk about Jesus. And often, we don't even do it intentionally, but we separate them and we talk about God and Jesus as if they were separate beings. When the Bible puts them together, we call this the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Different parts and activities of God, but all God, one God. And so how does Jesus respond? I wonder why the good man dies, the bad man thrives, and Jesus cries because he loves them both. And we could refer to a bunch of stories in the Gospels to see how Jesus responds to this problem. He responds to it in a whole variety of ways. Um, One of my favorite passages in John 11, just to summarize, um, one of Jesus' friends, Lazarus, is sick. Martha, his sister, comes to tell Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. Jesus doesn't come right away and Lazarus dies. Jesus found that Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days when when he's coming towards uh, where Lazarus was. Martha runs out to him, Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would would not have died. That question sounds familiar, doesn't it? If you had been here, my brother would not have died. God, I believe you're all powerful, but this happened. Jesus says, your brother will rise again. Mary says, I know he'll rise at the resurrection the last day. Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. After Jesus said this, Martha's sister Mary runs towards Jesus and says the same thing. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Lord, I believe that you're all powerful, that you could have responded to this, but you weren't even here. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, the scripture says that he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. This word to describe Jesus being deeply moved in the Greek means this inner turmoil. This, he's torn apart on the inside. He's stirred up. He's, there's anger, connotations of anger. And then it says, the, the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. And the Jews said, see how he loved Lazarus. And before we continue with the story, the question that you come across when you're reading this, when you know the end of the story, Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead. If Jesus is the resurrection of the life, if he is all-powerful, if he is God in flesh, and he's the answer to the question, why does he weep? Why is he deeply troubled and torn apart on the inside. See, I believe this story gives us a micro picture of God's response to the suffering and evil. Jesus, God doesn't always respond in our own timing and the way he think he, we ought, the way we think he ought to. But when you pay attention to the logic of God, the person of God with flesh on, we realize that Jesus enters into the suffering world, that he's angry and torn apart at the suffering just like we are, and he weeps. And he joins others in their weeping. And then he raises Lazarus from the dead. And we live in that very same space between the weeping Jesus and the resurrection. 
See, Philippians 2 talks about that Jesus was in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be, be grasped, but he took the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. He emptied himself. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And that, that phrase, he emptied himself, describes what I believe is part of the answer in the person of Jesus. The Greek word's kanao. Can you say kanao? He emptied himself. He got rid of the benefits of his divinity. And he made himself nothing, became a servant. He entered the suffering of his world that he created. And so to come back to this, these four points that we've mentioned... And this isn't the complete answer, but I think it helps us approach these four truths of the Christian faith with a gospel-centered answer. That God exists, one. Two, that God is all-powerful. That's true. But when we look at Philippians 2, Kanao, we recognize that God does not hang on to this all-powerfulness. That there is a sense that God limits himself. Kanao. He empties himself. Why? Which brings us to point three. Not only because God is good, but because 1 John 4, 8 says that God is love. The very essence of God the Father is love. The very essence of who he is means that he will set aside his power, his sovereignty for the sake of love because that is who he is. In the person of Jesus, God limits that because of his love and enters into the suffering world. The primary attribute of God is love and all of his attributes, attributes yield to that. The Bible never says God is all-powerful. It doesn't say that's who God is. God is all-powerful. That's part of who he is. But his essence, his being is love. Peter Kreeft explains this answer, this answer in the person of Jesus this way. And I think it's, it's beautifully written, so instead of just trying to say it myself, I'll read what he wrote. He says, it was, it was the unthinkable, the absolute paradox that the eternal God should have a beginning in time, that the maker of Mary's womb should be made in Mary's womb, that he first that the first one became second, that the independent one became dependent as a little baby, dependent for his very earthly existence, not on the will of the flesh, but on the new Eve, referring to Adam and Eve, on the new Eve saying yes to the angel where the old Eve had said yes to the devil. Even the devil did not expect this folly, that God should step right into Satan's trap, Satan's world, Satan's game, the jaws of death on the cross, that he should give Satan the opportunity to cherish forever in dark satanic glee the terrible words from God to God, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? This was something that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no heart of man conceived, as it says in 1 Corinthians 2.9, that God should take alienation away from man by inserting alienation into the very heart of God. 
that he should conquer evil by allowing its supreme, unthinkable triumph, deicide, the murder of God, which is what that means, the introduction of death into the life of God, the God of life, the immortal one, that he should destroy the power of evil by allowing it to destroy him. This is the foolishness of God that is wiser than man and the weakness of God that is stronger than man. The cross is judo, which I love that. You could tweet that. The cross is judo. Let me just pause here for a quick second. What is judo? I used to love like martial arts movies, like Bruce Lee loved it, Chuck Norris loved it, Van Damme loved it, Steven Seagal hated it. I hated Steven Seagal. And if you ever watch a Steven Seagal movie, it's the most boring thing you've ever seen in your entire life. Why? Because he's a master at judo. He is. I I, I read growing up that in a real fight, Steven Seagal would take all of those guys. But you watch his movies and they're terrible. Because what is judo? Judo is is this martial art that actually takes the attack of the enemy and uses that very force back on the enemy himself. And so if you watch a Steven Seagal movie, he's just like, it's like doing very little. And the enemy basically ends up, you know, dying. It's not very fun to watch, but it was very effective, apparently in real life as well. Peter Kreef is saying, the cross is judo. The cross is the place where the enemy's own power is used to defeat himself. Satan's craftily orchestrated plot rolled along according to plan by his agents, Judas, Pilate, Herod, Caiaphas, culminating in the death of God. In this very event, Satan's conclusion was God's premise. Satan's end was God's means. It saved the world. Can I get an amen for that? The cross is judo. There's a book called uh, The Brothers Karamazov, written by Fyodor Dostoevsky. Sorry if my Russian's a little off. There's a character in the story named Ivan. And there's this haunting passage which, which Ivan is wrestling with this problem of evil. And he considers the possibility that the world might advance towards perfection at the cost of torturing a single innocent little child to death. This this little girl he talks about would suffer this horrible death for the plans of God to move forward, and he concludes that this price is too high of a price to pay. And he rejects God not because he doesn't believe in God, but because he is a rebel and will not bow his knee to a God like that. And this morning I say that I am with Ivan. If God said, I'm going to create one being, I'm going to damn this being, this child, create them with the capacity to experience pain and suffering just to move my plan forward, I reject that God. I would rather switch places with that innocent child. I would rather be rejected by God. I would rather go to hell than to come to peace with that horrendous thought. And it's in that moment, in that place, that I recognize that I can actually accept God. 
It's in that place where I get a glimpse of Jesus on the cross and realizing that that was the heart of Jesus that he said, I'm not okay with that. I would rather die on the cross. I would rather go to hell. I would rather do everything in my power than to see evil run its course. Jesus on the cross is the answer. And to be sure, it's a mystery. I didn't say it wasn't a mystery. But it's God's answer to the problem of evil. The cross acknowledges evil but refuses to give it the last word. Yes, evil exists. The resurrection tells us that yes, God is trustworthy, that God will ultimately have the final word, that God is all-powerful. It acknowledges that God is all-powerful, but yet God empties himself because he is love. Retributive theology is true to an extent because Jesus was resurrected. But it's not true in the timeliness that we would like it to be true in. And thankfully, it's not ultimately true because forgiveness has been made available to all. And since we're all castaways, we need a rope. The cross says that yes, God's justice will have the final word, but thank God that his forgiveness is available to all. God is good, God is love, God suffered, Jesus is God. And when we look on the cross, we don't see a crucified human scapegoat, we see a crucified God, a God who suffers himself. And outside of the cross, there aren't enough pieces to complete the problem or the puzzle to the problem of suffering. The cross is ultimately not simply about forgiving individuals so then go to heaven, although it's part of it. It's God's answer to the whole problem of evil. What the Gospels offer is not a philosophical explanation of evil. What it is or why it's there, nor a set of suggestions for how we might adjust our lifestyle so that evil will mysteriously disappear from our existence. But the story of the gospel is a story of an event in which the living God deals with evil once and for all. Jesus did three things to solve the problem of suffering. I'm gonna, and as I'm sharing this, the, the van is going to come up. First, God came and he suffered with us. Jesus wept. If you take away anything this morning, I hope we take away that Jesus is what God has to say and Jesus wept. The second thing is that in becoming man, he transformed the meaning of our suffering. It's now a part of his work for redemption. And this is what we're going to get into next week, that our death pangs actually become the birth pangs for heaven, not only for ourselves, but also for those we love. He redeems suffering itself. Third, he died and rose again. Dying, he paid the price for sin and opened heaven to us. Rising, he transformed death from a hole into a door, from an end into a beginning. So we began this series with the mystery, not just of suffering, but suffering in a world supposedly created by a good and loving God. And so the question is, how do we get God off the hook? God's answer is Jesus. Jesus is not God off the hook, but it's God on the hook. That's why the doctrine of the divinity of Christ is crucial. If that is not God there on the cross, but only a good man, then God is not off the hook. But if that is God hanging on the cross in the form of Jesus, then God is off the hook because it's him on the hook. 
There's one good reason for not believing in God, and that's evil. And God himself has answered this objection, not in words, but in deeds, in actions, in the person of Jesus, and ultimately with the tears of Jesus. What does God have to say to our questions of evil? Jesus is what God has to say. Jesus is what God has to say. Jesus is the tears of God. And in the series, we've considered these statements, if God is good, then dot, 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 fill in your question. But this morning, I hope that we can lay to rest the idea or even the question that God is good because God is good. Jesus is the logic of God and the answer of God. And if Jesus is God with flesh on, then there is no if. God is good. And more than that, God is love. God is good. God is love. And the question that I leave us with this morning is, do you recognize that we're all castaways in need of rope? And that the line between good and evil runs between every one of us. And then the second one after that is, do we recognize that Jesus is the perfect answer to, our, to evil, to suffering, to our own sickness and condition? And can you take the step of believing and putting faith in him because of that? And maybe you're someone who's had faith in Jesus, but maybe in recent years and months, in the midst of hardship and pain, you've actually began to blame him for it. Your heart's grown hard towards him. And this morning he whispered to you and said, I'm a good God. That I'm in it with you and I weep with you. That I'm the resurrection, the life, and although you don't see it and feel it now, it's still true. And that'll be revealed in time. And maybe this morning it's about just saying, sorry, God, I believe that you're a good father. And more than that, I believe that you are the essence of love. And I believe that Jesus is what you have to say to me. And even though there's so much mystery in that, that's enough. Maybe for the first time this morning, you've, you've realized that God is nothing like you thought he was. That maybe you've been like that Ivan character who said, I want nothing to do with a God like that. And then you looked at Jesus and you realized that Jesus isn't a God like that. And he's worthy of our faith. That he is Lord of lords and King of kings. If you're in a place this morning where you can come into agreement with that, whether you've been journeying with Jesus for a while or whether this is new to you, I just want to give you an opportunity to respond by putting a hand in the air. And then I want to pray for you. Just putting a hand and saying, I'm a castaway and need a rope, that I believe that God is good, that he is love. And that even though there's mystery in that, I believe that it's enough. Just put up a hand. Jesus sees that hand, but more than that, he sees our hearts, and he knows what's going on in your heart. I invite you to pray with me. 
to respond to God with me in your hearts. That Father, we believe in faith that you are a good God, that you are a God of love. Lord, we acknowledge this morning that we're all castaways and we need a rope. That there's no such thing as the good guys and bad guys, Lord, but we're a mix. We're distorted and that we need healing. And so we invite your spirit to come and to heal us and to make us whole. Lord, we thank you that you came in the person of Jesus that you responded to our suffering, to our pain. Lord, that you are big enough to absorb in you the death of our kids, the cancer we have, the pain of our world. The terrorism that many brothers and sisters are experiencing across the world. Lord, you are big enough to absorb all of that into yourself. And Lord, we thank you for your justice, but more than that, we thank you for your love and your grace and your forgiveness because without it, we'd drown. Lord, I'm sorry for the times when my heart's grown cold and hard towards you because I've believed a lie about you. And I thank you that you've spoken truth about who you are and that you are this all-powerful but all-loving God that stops at nothing, that stops at nothing for each one of us. And we thank you that the cross speaks through these lies, that the cross speaks through these mysteries, and we come face-to-face -face with you in the person of Jesus, and we come to this place of decision of what are you going to do? And we decide this morning, God, that you're Lord, that you're King, that you're enough. And we put our faith, our questions, and our mystery into you. We pray these things in the name of our good Father. Amen. Sometimes you know, we long to experience Jesus there beside us like Mary and Martha did. And one of the ways he does that is in the tangible presence of other Jesus followers. You know, when they put their hand on your back, when they pray for you, when they just sit and listen to you, sometimes there's a profound sense that God is being present with you through somebody else. And, and I would just encourage you, if you find yourselves in one of these seasons that you know, you're looking for Jesus, then I would invite you to, to chat and pray with somebody. Um, if you don't have anyone to do that with, we always have prayer team members available that would love to pray with you. If this morning you took that step for the first time and, you know, decided that you wanted to put your faith in Jesus, I would invite you to, uh, to come and talk to me. I'd love just to hear your story and uh, do this journey and begin this journey with you.